Blog Talk Radio. Charles Collingsworth at the White House in Washington, D.C. For many of you, this will be your first visit to this historical landmark. Our tour through these hallowed halls will be conducted by the First Lady.
father killed my great-great-grandfather. And your white-great-grandfather sold my great-grandfather. And your white-grandfather raped my grandmother. And your father stole, cheated, lied, and robbed my father. What kind of a fool would I have to be to say, come, my friend, to the white daughter and son? Good evening, America. This is your president. Please listen carefully to the announcement I'm about to make. After careful consideration and research, Vice President Duke, Congress, and myself have concluded that black people have not advanced technologically. Their educational testing scores are on a rapid decline. The vast majority of them are on welfare and producing babies at a faster rate than they can support them. And we will not carry them anymore. We are left with no other choice but to put slavery back into effect. All blacks will report to the designated camps in their area to receive further orders. The only blacks excused will be those serving in the United States military and the police. Any blacks who do not cooperate will be terminated immediately. I repeat, slavery is back in effect. We are at war! That's what I told you. I know you heard what the president said, and if the nigga don't move, then he's dead. It's time for us to take the stand. Woman to woman and man to man. Blood pressure through your veins, you feel the fear. Who'd have thought that it could happen here? In the land of the free, home of the brave. The year's 95, you're a slave.
legitimate 
interests in the country, of the country. Federal government becomes a non-entity, one that upholds values diametrically opposed to the interests of real Americans. Now, in versions of facilitating strategies to debilitate or weaken the poor, use, the use of surveillance is key in assessing the effectiveness of employee strategies by the state. Surveillance is an intimate tactic used to sharpen strategy to achieve the desired amount of pliability among the poor, makes logistical analysis possible, thus increasing the effectiveness of state strategy to consider economic, political policy that sees the poor's existence as problematic. Even though science-based support teams of the State Department is implicated, the Clinton administration under Dick Morris is credited with innovating the instrumentalities that made the manipulation of the poor easier to achieve. Under the core neuropsychological profile by St. Clair and Cockburn, Morris was able to devise a formula which captures the value system of working people and use that value system to create political and economic policy to superficially appeal to working people while serving the interests of the wealthy. The system Morris innovated was very successful. As a result, Clinton's cuts to social spending, get tough on crime, and cuts to state revenues resonated with most of the working people in the U.S., but the true impact of such policies were concealed by mainstream media. While reducing welfare rolls from 12, from 12 million people to 18 million people seemed seductive over a four-year period, but, but, whom, but, whom, both the, but, uh, but um, unfortunately, both the value and velocity of currency flowing through the economic system is what makes economic expansion possible. Without government support of social spending and the elimination of dollars in circulation, an economic downturn is assured, resulting in a feeble economy and recession. By 1995, a recession in the U.S. took hold, and the working people, unbeknownst to them, were enticed to embrace policies that only benefited the wealthy via higher asset prices, i.e. Uh, stocks, bonds, and treasuries, and so forth. In order to augment the attack on the poorest of the poor, cuts to revenue sharing with states was changed from individual states' needs to block grants. Federal government revenues to states were slashed by $14.6 billion with the stipulations states would now administer their own welfare programs free of federal, federal government's intrusion. The unsteady goal had been all along to empower states to kick poor people off welfare, and the 1.1 million children living in abject poverty were never a concern. Ironically, this caveat was, success, was succeeded by $2.5 billion in food stamp cuts to, to those very same states. Now, carrying out this inane policy to inflict pain on the poor requires organization and individuals committed to those ends. Chief among state tactics to move, to, to move against the poor requires the federal government be seen as the enemy. Wildly effective, this tactic has culminated in 90% of adult citizens who see the federal government and not capitalism as a problem. Putting this statistic in context, according to Gallup polls, problems of racism, crime, inflation, and COVID-19 only resonates with 4 to 60% of the adult U.S. population. Organizations abound espousing this can-do spirit of American exceptionalism and why the poor are an anathema or a hindrance to the American way of life. Often in pursuit of an objective to rid the country of the poor lies an authoritarian strain that, uh, that appears impatient with a resolution that seems forever to implement. The leader for the Center for Renewing America, a Christian nationalist, advocates, quote, Consciousness bringing on the toughest and most courageous fighters we now know and, and with incredibility to crush the deep state, end of quote. And deconstructing his sentence, war seems an indispensable element, both in the implica, implica, implication, 
excuse me, but the implication of using authoritarianism as a means to achieve the objective seems clear. Precisely what is that objective? Aside from bringing back an American way of life in which wealthy white males exercise total economic political control of society, the biggest obstacle standing in the way is the elimination of the federal government. Interestingly, this theme of toppling the federal government is expressed in a, in a way that does not supplement its intent, but says in absolute and in ambiguous terms, the federal government is the enemy and it must go. Among the most virulent and expressive adherence to the federal government's demise is Marjorie Taylor Greene, a congresswoman of Georgia. Ms. Greene recently endorsed the concept of national divorce. The concept holds red states, presumably conservative states, and blue states, presumably liberal states, have nothing in common. That is, split between the red and blue states is preferable to avoid a Civil War 2.0. Divisions between red and blue states involves around questions of human dignity. While many leaders in red states see the ex exploitation of the poor, especially people of color, as God, their God-given right, many like Green are incensed at the perceived human rights afforded gays, immigrants of color, and Muslims. The reality is these issues have been magnified on a national scale where the fundamental rights of those perceived as problematic, including the poor under capitalism, are under attack. Special interest committees are being established specifically to question the legitimacy of the U.S. government and its institutions by Republicans. Strategic reasons for, this, for the formation of these select committees belies four sinister reasons for their existence. One, to generate headlines. Secondly, to legitimize conspiracy theories. Thirdly, and probably most importantly, promote victimhood narrative for the wealthy. And fourthly, create conditions. If conservatives are investigated, the government will be accused of targeting conservatives. One committee in particular uh, personifies the end game of solidifying political power in the hands of conservative operatives committed to authoritarian political structures and a dystopian character to support those political structures. That committee, the Select Committee on Weaponization of the Federal Government, attempts to make the case investigations of conservative causes is tantamount to federal government's harassment. The objective is to solidify in the minds of the right-wingers the federal government has an implicit bias against conservatives. Therefore, the federal government must be perceived as the enemy. Now, the chilling effect of, of lawmaking is palpable. Only laws favorable to the ruling class will be advanced, but even more onerous is any expectation that even the pretense of fairness will be gone forever. The abhorrent ill-treatment of the poor would only get progressively worse, and the uh, horrors of yesterday or yesteryear will revisit America with a vengeance. Even though the systematic horrors on African people will be proportionally worse, the injustice will be inflicted on, on all people irrespective of skin color. Unless working people come to understanding, understand declining capitalism is the catalyst behind the horrendous conditions impacting poor people, it mitigates our efforts to formulate our own strategies and tactics to fight back. And with that, Brother Africa, all I can say is that the fight continues, and it's in clear that people in society have to understand concretely you know, that all of these horrible things that are happening to people, particularly poor people, working people in society, it's not in the mere abstraction, but it exists because it serves the interests of capitalism. And let's be very clear on that point, and I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we're going to make a transition to Brother Anthony Williams, who is a member of the All-African Peoples Revolutionary Party, GC. We would like to welcome him to Africa on the move. Thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. 
My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. From Brother Anthony, we now will go to Brother Robert Moses, who's a member of the D.C. Metro Coalition in Solidarity of the Cuban Revolution. We welcome you, Brother Moses, to Africa on the Move. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Africa. <clears throat> Greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. And I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during the government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race secure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. We don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. I bear witness that women hold up half the sky. Therefore, I'm for the Equal Rights Amendment, ERA, yes. The struggle is, continues to be this, to separate the good from the bad, to separate the correct path from the incorrect path, to, to, to unite the many, to defeat the few, to, to get the socialized production in line with socialized appropriation so that the 1% is not getting richer and richer while the 99% gets poor and poor. This is a struggle. Anyway, uh, I'm glad to be on the show, Brother Africa, and thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And now we will bring you Sister Eleanor Johnson, who is also a member of the D.C. Metro Coalition in support of the Cuban Revolution. Welcome, Sister Eleanor. Thank you so much. Thank you, and good evening, Brother Africa, fellow panelists, and to our listening audience in the United States and abroad. Um, I look forward to a very exciting show. Uh, we are, as an, as an environmentalist, an artist, and a human rights advocate, I feel that it is urgent that we address the needs of the community as they exist today. Um, we, uh, I hope to share with you a little bit of information about uh, Councilmember Robert White's uh, bill um, to lift the embargo for the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., to lift the embargo against Cuba. Uh, this is an exciting uh, phenomenon. It shows how um, little by little, uh, the people will change the world until we have a complete revolution. And uh, just, again, thank you so much for allowing me to participate in the show, and um, have a good evening. Thank you, Sister Eleanor, and to our listening audience. This is Africa on the Move. I'm your host, Brother Africa. We're going to be in the seat and we're going to take the heat because as we define it, we're going to stand behind it. We're going to invite you to come and join us on our first segment as we talk about what's going on in your world and community. And you can do that at 323-679-0841. 
But you can't do that until we come back from our Revolutionary Culture Break. We'll be right back, and you're listening to Africa on the Move.
That's right. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Moon, because Africa is fighting. That's right, it's fighting. It's fighting against imperialism, fighting against Zionism, it's fighting against neocolonialism, it's fighting against all systems that support man and woman. Africa is fighting. It wants its humanity back. It wants to be in control of its own destination. Africa is fighting because there's no other choice but to fight if you want to exist. You, children of Africa, come and join your mother and let's fight to get our liberation. At this point in time, on the 5th day of March, we will open up this program and segment of what's going on in your world and the community. We invite you, the listening audience, to call in at 323-679-08. Share your views and perspective on what's going on in your world and your community. Today's theme is Africa is fighting. But before we discuss our theme and our articles that's associated with our theme, like always, we'll go to our political panel analysts and we would like to ask a question. What's going on in your world and the community, Brother Haki? The mic is yours. <clears throat> well, Brother Africa, um, you know, uh, you know, when we talk about the problems, you know, affiliated with, you know, American society, uh, one thing that you have to understand, you know, aside from the fact that, um, you know, capitalism is in decline, one of the things we, we, we understand very, very clearly is that the role of stratagems they use in terms of deceiving the masses of the people uh, continues to grow. Certainly one of the strategies they use in terms of deceiving people is a use of polls. And so one of the things is that, by you know presenting these polls, it creates perception that in fact that these is just this is an adjust, uh, objective assessment, but in fact what's going on you know in society, when in reality not necessarily belies what's really going on in society, but geared specifically toward in terms of manipulation of ideas and facts. So clearly polls play a big part in terms of that whole process. And so one of the things I thought I did real quickly is to talk a little bit about that because I think it's clear that we understand, or at least it should be clear that we understand that a lot of times when we read polls, it doesn't necessarily convey that which is objective or honest, uh, but a lot of times it's done for political manipulation. So in event, Brother Africa, check this out. Now, public opinion polls since 1936 have been used to gauge opinions and attitudes of the U.S. public. Privately owned and supported by endowments, the, public, the politicization of polls have long been a concern since their origin. The criteria established to legitimize polls have evolved with the implementation of appropriate sample size, interviewing cross-sections of society in general social economics, and the formulation of, of the questions. Given the political, the political character of polls, criteria is often manipulated to ensure polls outcomes favorable to the wealthy or the ruling class. Nowhere is this practice more axiomatic than the Rasmussen report, bias and polls, which is well established by watchdog groups. Known to report poll findings leaning right wing, Rasmussen again has found itself deep in controversy with respect to polling results. Often engaging in a nebulous content, Rasmussen report recently posed the question, is it okay to be white? Lacking in context, both historical and otherwise, the statement in a question is open-ended and making sense of the implication of such a question complicates the ability to articulate a rational reason to justify yes or no. In fact, 20% of the white respondents stated it is not okay to be white. Apparently, these individuals did not see whiteness as monolithic and is reflected in their response. 
If whites see the question as nonsensical, how is it anyone expects rational response from an irrational question from other ethnicities, specifically African people? If the poll's attempt is to engage the unconscious bias among the respondents, there is no conceivable way for the respondents to correctly assess the motivation of the statement which may elicit a response based on what they think the poster wants to hear. Even more problematic with the oddity of the question is the non-secretor response it is likely to elicit from the respondents. By asking the question, is it okay to be white, it raises several questions. One, white relative what? Whiteness, it, whiteness in and of itself lacks connotations. Whiteness does not manifest in the U.S. historical narrative as an abstraction uh, some colloquially referred to as white exhibit humanity, while others pervade ruthlessness, shocking the human consciousness. Two, should it be deferred whiteness has some special denotation that sufficiently defines whiteness, characterization, or behavior? In a historical context, if certain values and or behaviors are defined as white, will not such characterization limit values and behaviors to the domain of wealthy whites? encasing whiteness as bloodthirsty predators incapable of humane impulses. Alongside class analysis, viewed through the prism of capitalism exploitation, excesses employed to colonize, exploit, using genocidal methods may well be justified by the ruling elite, but in no sense objectively depicts all the behavior of all whites. So answering the question, is it okay to be white, context is needed. Now, interestingly, Scott Adams, the cartoonist, uh, responds to the poll and the, the fact 50% of the African respondents to the poll agreed to the bigger statement, it's okay to be white. 21% were not sure, 26% disagree that it's okay to be white. According to Adams, the 26% of Africans who disagreed, presumably with the 21% not sure, were indicative of a hate group. Adams' hubris, dare I say racism, was on full display. Rather than appreciate the poll was constructed to form an anger, and the supposition itself preposterous, rather than crediting Africans in the sentence, at least the 47% of respondents, with the insight of, of, of not responding to ambiguity the only way possible, were instead labeled a hate group. I'm willing to acknowledge the intelligence demonstrated by the 47% of the African respondents. He instead instituted a century-old tirade proclaiming he would never help Africans again. John Swartz of the, of the Intercept News had an interesting take on white people helping Africans. Often this help would take the form of encouraging Africans to work within the system. Pursuit of substantive change is never encouraged, and for, and, and for a pat on the head, oppressed Africans are expected to be internally grateful. Citing examples of genocide against indigenous tribes and the atrocities committed in Vietnam, one example he postulated pretty much encapsulates the destruction gratitude paradox that inflicts so many white people on the left and right of the political divide. That example is Desert Storm. During the U.S. invasion of Iraq, hundreds of thousands of tons of bombs were unleashed on Baghdad. The intent, according to Donald Rumsfeld, defense secretary under George Bush, was to bomb Iraq back into the Stone Age, the objective achieved. To the dismay of many in the American public, the gratitude that they expected from Iraq is never materialized. The country had been liberated, but the, but the help Iraqis envisioned did not entail the destruction of their, comp, of their country. The reason here is clear. If help is contingent on ending capitalism, and Adams epitomizes this point, help is conditional and can be withdraw, withdrawn very easily. Now, the political necessity, now the political necessity of polls are necessary as a propaganda tool 
in the barometer to assess the effectiveness of, of political policy. Perhaps more importantly, it is to assess the thoughts of the population and the precarious nature of capitalism. Over the last two years, the richest 1% of the world amassed two-thirds of all the global wealth created. $42 trillion of the world's wealth since 1922 has been siphoned, and as the level of inequality rises, <clears throat> this practice has not, has not diminished. According to Oxfam, the richest 1% saw their fortunes increase by $2.7 billion a day. As a consequence, says Lending Club Organization, in the U.S., 62% of the people live paycheck to paycheck, up from 60% of the people a month earlier as of October 2022. problem of living paycheck to paycheck is not confined to the working poor, but families of six-figure annual salaries. Despite Federal Reserve's interest rate increases to reduce inflation and bring prices down, the policy continues to be ineffective. Against this background, polls serve as a prognosticator to alerting states of growing anger and threats to institutions. The form, the form polls take to assess political problems and the political direction to manage conceivable threats differ from country to country. In the UK, a recent poll indicated a perception exists too many ethnic minorities and LGBT are represented on TV. Since TV, for the most part, is a fictional representation of life, it is difficult to assess why seeing ethnic and gay groups on TV is problematic. The report also stated the community's perception is UK's African population is 20% when in reality it's actually 3%. Its Asian population, including the Middle Easterners, is 17% in reality is only 7%. And its gay population, which is 30%, in reality is only 4%, just according to the poll. What is interesting about the poll is, is the perceived inflated numbers of Africans. Obviously, ethnicity and skin color may compel UK, UK communities to see dark skin as originating out of Africa as opposed to everyone originating out of Africa, speaks volumes about the unconscious bias in UK society. If media can, can create the perception African populations are greater than they are, concocting polls that exaggerate the necessity of racial discrimination will be easy to fabricate, not to mention justifying programs against the perceived, those perceived as enemy. Polls can be very dangerous tools in the era of capitalism decline. We all should be very aware of that possibility. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Hakeem. Next, we'll go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world in the community? Okay. Uh, let's see. Next weekend, on March 11th and 12th, uh, the International U.S.-Cuba Normalization Conference will take place at Fordham University in New York City. Uh, this is going to be an event that takes place uh, uh, the, uh, next uh, weekend, uh, March 11th and 12th of uh, this year. And um, one of the organizations invited to speak is the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. We will be speaking on the panel Cuba and the African diaspora. Cuba, Africa, the Caribbean, and African-American struggles. I will be representing the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, on this panel, which starts, which runs from 2 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. 
and uh, I will be representing the All Africans Revolutionary Party. And uh, this uh, uh, this panel discusses the relationship between Africans at home in the diaspora to uh, to Cuba, and um, it should be uh, very informative and enlightening. So. Uh, uh, please uh, uh, check it out if you have time. Uh, you can uh, go to their website, which is US Cuba Normalization Conference dot org, and uh, you can, uh, if you register, you can actually listen in. Online, you don't have to physically be there if you don't have the means or resources to travel to New York City for the uh, conference. So, uh, you know, uh, that in a nutshell is what's happening in uh, in my world and community. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Next, we go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses. What's happening in your world and community? Thank you. Thank you, Brother Africa. As you know, I'm all about revolution. I'm all about revolution with inside the U.S. of A., and I'm talking internal contradictions. So so my world starts with that contradiction. Uh, um, CPAC, this conservative political action committee, had this little conference over the weekend, and uh, Donald Trump on the polls showing him the 60% of the of the whatever constituency and uh so he's launching his he's moving on his presidential pursuits and uh he says he's gonna run whether he's indicted or not so that's one thing that i'm concerned about uh because that represents the right wing and uh no matter what it's going to be a right wing uh, on, on the on the republican side because it's it's all it's trump or imitation trump uh, because that's the nature of finance capital and the nature of of a corporate ca- capital and uh in uh, in the u s today and their representatives so meanwhile as there's that normalization conference uh, as Anthony brought up so I won't repeat it uh, there's March eighteenth coming up not too far in the future where there will be a march and rally at the White House at 1 p.m. calling all people who are, who are concerned about NATO and the expansion of the U.S. imperialism around the world and to stop the war machine, to stop the the Ukraine funding. Uh, and uh, so that will be on the 18th. Uh, uh, Man, meanwhile, let's see. I'm I'm uh, I'm gonna leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, and from Brother Moses, Sister Eleanor. What's going on in your world and the community? Well, the good news is is that um, the 
National Network on Cuba, D.C. Network to Normalize Relations with Cuba, has worked with uh, City Council Member Robert White to put a bill forward, um, PR 25-0113, Sense of the Council on the uh, Restoration of Cuban-American Relations, uh, a resolution of 2013. I would urge um, people to write the City Council of the District of Columbia at 1350 Pennsylvania Avenue Northwest, Washington, D.C., 2004, as well as Mayor Muriel Bowser uh, to let her know how important this is to uh, the city. But right now, the important thing is to get letters out to the uh, city council members, Vince Gray, um, Nadeau, uh, White, and several others have already signed on. But it's very important that um, we get as many people in the D.C., DMV, organizations, unions, uh, policy groups, et cetera, commissioners, obviously, ANC commissioners, interfaith and community uh, leaders to endorse the resolution uh, that is currently in the D.C. Council um, uh, by by just um, sending a letter out or contacting the um, uh, um, the National Network on Cuban D.C. Network uh, to Normalize Relations with Cuba. They have a uh, web, uh, they have a, a couple of contact persons. Uh, one is uh, Dante O'Hara, Ph.D., D.C. Network to Normalize Relations with Cuba. And uh, they have a uh, uh, Kush Kennard, also DC Network to Normalize Relations with Cuba, and a woman by the name of Cheryl uh, Labash. And uh, I have a phone number here for them. It's 301-875-9073 and 760-521-9397. Um, the uh, email is Kush Harad, K U S H K H A R O D, at gmail.com. Kush, K U S H K Harad, um, still all one word, Kush Harad, K U S H K H A R O D at gmail dot com, and uh, the second email is D A N T E O H A R A at gmail dot com, D A N T E O H A R A at gmail dot com. You know, we we um, talk about. Cuba, and one of the things that I think is really important to mention is that uh, Cuba, a small country, 
uh, because of the embargo, was prevented from getting his vaccine out to numerous nations. And uh, this is unfortunate for the people of the world, but what Cuba was successful in doing during the COVID-19 crisis was it was to keep the death toll low in Cuba because it had developed its own vaccine and it rolled it out to over 95% of its citizens. It it, it is uh, uh, believed to be one of the fastest rates of vaccination in the world. In addition to to that is that these embargoes that uh, we see have an incredible impact on Cuba in terms of um, purchasing basic supplies, medical supplies, building supplies, things of this nature. And the way that the U.S. is able to keep this threat alive is through the Office of Foreign Asset, Asset Control or the U.S. Treasury. Now, the Office of Foreign Asset Control, OFAC, and the U.S. Treasury are able to uh, um, uh, re- reinforce risk assessment. They they stop the banks from interfacing with Cuba because Trump, in the last week of his administration, added uh, Cuba back on the list of uh, state-sponsored terrorism list. Obama had taken Cuba off uh, not very long ago. I think it might have been 2015. But but now with the reinforcement of this, this list and, and the embargo itself, risk assessment bikes, which uh, – would normally invest in Cuba aren't touching it. It's it just it's just impossible. And the impact that this has had on um, Cuba is uh, incredible. Not only on Cuba, but on the nations of the world. Cuba is unable to buy things on the world market that we all. Uh, take for granted. The blockade prevents Cuba from purchasing life-saving medicine, equipment, and basic goods. It even prevents Cuban citizens or Cubans in the U.S. from um, having any kind of financial um, interactions with their family members. As a result of Trump's escalation during the the global pandemic, Cuba has been hindered in in its plans to produce and share its vaccine with the world. And President Biden has failed to deliver on his um, campaign promise. I believe he said that he would uh, return uh, Cuba to uh, to Obama's Cuba policy and his did continue the Trump policy of collective, I call it just collective punishment. Um, um, we 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 have to uh, think about uh, Cuba as uh, the first uh, liberated nation in 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 South America, and it's allies, our African brothers and sisters 
including uh, first Ghana, Guinea, and so many other countries, Algeria, Egypt, and so many countries, and what Cuba has done for so many people, especially African people, um, during the um, Occupy Wall Street campaign in 2011, um, several Cuban artists um, participated in the uh, uh, making a huge 18-foot uh, mural uh, showing the 99% and a, a huge monster representing the 1% devouring the world. And it showed the the different corporations that this monster uh, that make make up this monster. Why we the people are struggling uh, uh, at the bottom. Now they call this mural Occupy Havana, and it's an uh, they call it eight meters high mural planted over. A, it was painted over a four day period in May. Uh, of 2012 by a group of uh, Cuban artists, and it is an example of international solidarity for democracy for the democracy movement that began in New York City as Occupy um, Wall Street in 2011. And the mural actually depicts a demonic figure consuming the planet, as I said, and it's holding and it's bitten a big hole in the planet. And the demonic figure, as I said, represents the one percent. And uh, uh, we, of course, represent the 99%. So, you know, when we take for granted being able to purchase uh, building supplies and things like that, the entire nation of Cuba uh, is cut off from crucial industrial and manufacturing equipment uh, and and uh, uh, the sanctions prevent international business and financial institutions from doing business with Cuba. And this really has to come to an end. And Cuba has been hindered in its plans to, to do so many things to help people around the world, but it continues to do one thing, and that is to import export knowledge. That is doctors, and engineers and scientists to Mother Africa and around the world to help oppress people. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Well, panelists, I don't know if y'all been well, but uh, there have been all kind of uh, languages uh, being used in the media to send things in cool. And I think, Brother Haki, in your earlier um, presentations, you mentioned the word national divorce. I'm not quite sure if people heard that concept of that word before, but maybe if you can give us your understanding of how they've been used and what they're going to mean when they talk about national divorce and its implications. Brother Haki? Yeah, essentially what you're saying, Brother Africa, is that the philosophical divide between those who are conservative and those who are quote-unquote uh, liberal and or progressive it's simply too wide a void in terms of bridging that void. And the possibility is that uh, a civil war, a second civil war, is probably the only resolution in terms of resolving that, that, that conflict. Uh, so unfortunately, you got a lot of these conservatives who are tickling that line. In fact, one of the things when we look at in terms of their propensity 
to demonize the federal government and institutions of this, of this country. Clearly, the, the motive is to, to weaken uh, the perception in terms of the good the federal government can do and weaken that perception of the federal government in terms of the capabilities, in terms of bringing about good results. Uh, it empowers those on the right whose position is that, you know, uh, you know, if you want to see real favorable change and to the extent that real Americans benefit from change, then here, you know, vote for us. And I think one of the things we have we have to keep in mind is that when we talk about in terms of, you know, we, when we talk about voting, we should not think in terms of voting in the abstract. Uh, one of the things, you know, when we, when we talk about voting in the context of American society, to understand when we talk about the influences that lobbyists have in terms of the political process, then we understand to a large extent the political process is not free by any stretch of imagination. In fact, these politicians are paid to take positions. In that context, when we talk about conservative strain that exists in society, uh, we understand that corporations, wealthy people, not just wealthy people in America, wealthy people throughout the world, invest in these candidates specifically because they want to marginalize the federal government. And marginalize the federal, federal government, they elevate the voices of the right. If you elevate the voices of the right, you get more strength, more power to those on the right. And so when you have, so when you have situations where you have totalitarianism creeping or you have uh, authoritarianism uh, tendencies manifesting themselves, or when you talk about the, the they talk about the full scale fascism, you know that's on that's on the way. So when you talk about these kind these kind of things, then we're very very clear that these kind of all these things serve the interests of the very powerful, and because they serve the interests of the powerful, it simply becomes a strategic question for the for the people on the right in terms of how you best bring about those those needed changes. This is what we got to be very careful about. So when so Marjorie Taylor Greene says a national divorce, and she's talking about legitimizing Civil War 2.0, she's not playing. She really believes that, listen, if the right, if the right wing, if their will doesn't manifest, if it's not the dominant uh, philosophy of society, then they're willing to go to war. And I think for people who think that's some type, some type of exaggeration or some type, you know, they should, they should understand that when you look at it in terms of the kind of policies that's coming out of Washington, D.C., and you look at the kind of statements that these conservatives are making, and you look in terms of these these think tanks and these conservative think tanks, and you look at in terms of uh, in terms of you know how economy how economics get expressed in the media, they're telling you all the time you know there's a reckoning to be had, and, and what Marjorie Taylor Greene said that reckoning is the war against you know the good people the good the good people which is the conservatives or the right against the bad people the progressive liberals on the left. And clearly, they're willing to have that war in terms of preservation of, of, of power. They're they're committed to doing that. And so this is what so for people who think that somehow that uh, this is a perfect union, understand you know that this potential, this propensity in terms of waging war to get your way is not new to the right to, the, to it's not it's not a new phenomenon to the right wing. They've always been in a position that you know they, they're going to have their way, irrespective. You know how change might benefit society. They're not interested in change to the extent it benefits society, but interested in change to the extent it benefits the right wing or the wealthy, you know, or the ruling class in society. So this is what Manji Telegram is essentially talking about. She's talking about this political divide and leading to to civil war 2.0. And to Brother Anthony, I want to lead off. You can, and the rest of the panelists can chime in on this. Uh, there seems to be a clarity now where um, Europeans and corporations and government officials is just outright being very um, outright uh, racist, using racist languages, language as relates to African people on many jobs, 
that man tell Africans that they are not allowed to come in a certain way, go to back doors, and the man calling people the N-word just outright. And many Africans are uh, having suits. Well, I'm just wondering in terms of the climate, what has emboldened the people to feel like they can just outright do this, uh, Brother Anthony? I think what has happened over, and uh, this goes back, uh, you know, some time. Uh, I think, um, you know, that what has emboldened uh, Europeans to attack uh, Africans and other oppressed uh, nationalities is um, goes back to the uh, to the war. Uh, that was waged against Libya, uh, quite frankly. And uh, this was done under the auspices of an African elected uh, president or head of state, Barack Obama. And uh, let's see, and... um, it seems as if a lot of forces within the African community went along with that policy. Not saying every, everybody, but a, a, a lot of people did, and it was and and I think they went along with it because it was done under an African uh, president. And I think, uh, and I think, the fact that uh, that there was minimal uh, dissent among uh, the African uh, political leadership has emboldened uh, some Europeans uh, to think that they can uh, do or say uh, or say anything against. Uh, Africans and not face any sort of political reprisal, and uh, and I think it's compounded by the fact that a lot of uh, a lot of Africans are disorganized or belong to the uh, 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 ruling. Democratic Republican duopoly, and I think those are the factors that have emboldened uh, some Europeans uh, to uh, to uh, to disrespect and attack more Africans more openly, even though we live in an era in which uh, you know. Uh, open, intimate relations between Africans and Europeans occur. So there's a lot of, so so that confuses, uh, uh, you know, some people, I think, that racism is overwhelmed. And, uh, you know, that's far from the case. And uh, the fact that... Um, that Africans have to be extraordinary in order to attain these uh, leadership roles, uh, you know, attest to that. 
Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Moses, do you ever take on why it seems like people are more, more open to this outright be so hostile and racist towards Africans and people who are non-European at this moment in history? Well, let me say, first of all, that I, I think um, Brother Anthony was on track um, when he talked about Libya and the situation uh, that has developed uh, historically since then. Um, I think we can go back to Ronald Reagan. We can go, we can, we, we, I don't know whether we can go back to the Mayflower or that go, but, but uh, I think, you know, we, we are faced with racism uh, as a, as a part of this capitalist rooted, the 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 tree was rooted in racism and it's grown and and it only bears fruit, poison fruit. Uh, um, that's why we need another tree. In other words, we need a reorganization of society uh, under another organized organized principle. Uh, um, I, in terms of the Civil War, of course, there's going to be a civil war. That's that's that's. I'm January 6th didn't tell you that. I don't know what what uh, uh, the problem is. We have to be organized to defend ourselves. We have to we have to going to take war. It's going to be an act of war against the right when we when we uh, appropriate their funds. You know, in terms of uh, uh, the revolution and, and the reordering of society in terms of class structure, and, et cetera. Um, and, and, you know, nothing reactionary falls but on the cord. It has to be toppled. And so, so uh, they, the, they have no illusions about, about they're going to fight and fight and fight. And, and we shouldn't have any illusions about, we have to defend ourselves. Um, um, any, anything, Anything short of that would be disarming the masses. If we don't if we don't tell the masses the truth about what's going to happen, then they won't be prepared for what's going to happen. Uh, um, that's why revolutionary theory is so important. I mean, that's why in the '60s, when in the early '60s, when Mao was talking about Khrushchev's phony communism and its its historic lessons to the world's people, the people who grasp what he was talking about then are not surprised now. Um, uh, because imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism, and you know, and so you know, there's been, there's been no socialist revolution in the Soviet Union, in the in the former Soviet Union. Of course, it's a capitalist country and it's imperialist. Um, um, meanwhile, we have a task before us to deal with the the turn our weapons on our own bourgeoisie, as they said during World War One. When the, all the imperialists were in, in a situation such as we have today with the imperialist war, and there's no good guys, there's just all imperialists fighting for reorganization and redistribution of the of the planet. Uh, um, but as working class, we have to see through it for what it is, and not not become cannon fodder for for some imperialist interests. Uh, I think you know. Um, well, there's a lot more that can be said. I, I'll just leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Sister Eleanor, a two-minute response to the same phenomenon. Why do you think people are seem to be more emboldened, just outright racist and nasty and hostile as it relates to African people and people non-European? 
I think uh, I'll go back to Brother Aki talking about um, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, is a part of the QAnon movement. The QAnon movement was a quasi-cult. It was um, based on uh, a gaming system that uh, that some young people uh, were developing uh, years ago, and they were using real name people. They claimed that uh, um, uh, Hillary Clinton was a vampire and a pedophile uh, up on uh, 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 Connecticut Avenue. Um, in the basement, killing children and this and that. And we even had someone, I believe, from the state of Wyoming attack this pizza parlor, which has no basement, none of the things alleged in the gaming system. And the QAnon in the gaming system believe that many of us are, quote, zombies, and you can't tell who's a zombie and who's a living human being until you've killed us. So we have um, cult members in the U.S. Congress, and we are going backwards with backwards with ignorance. And uh, uh, this is uh, one thing to have uh, capitalists and imperialists and greed, but it's another thing to have people that are. Uh, and 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 my point is to make it two minutes or less. Donald Trump legitimized the QAnon. When people asked him, a reporter asked him about the Q, thinking he was going to call them out for what they were, he said, and I quote, as a, uh, they like me, and if they like me, they're good people. And, and, and that gave legitimacy to the U.S. presidency of Donald Trump to the QAnon. And we see these extraordinarily backwards people that uh, 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 are doing absurd things and name-calling is the least of them. Because as we realized with the coup d'etat of January 6th a couple of years ago, that it seems that they have infiltrated the police department, the military, and other places, these reactionaries. Because we realized that without a draft, we had to offer certain incentives for people to join the military, and we've legitimized the military by saying, thank you for your service, and all of this while we were engaged in these horrific wars of aggression, such as the war in Iraq, where there were no weapons of mass destruction or in Afghanistan, where we we won the war but lost the, the government and the people, and we've left them to starve. And um, this is where you ignorance is where this reactionary movement is coming from, and that is to remember that the QAnon is a cult that was given legitimacy by Donald Trump. And that madness is a loose on the masses. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. And, bro- and Brother Haki, I'll raise with you as an example of this attitude towards Africa, African people, and this question is looking at us as if we are powerless. Was that recently there was a 
Israeli official, Israeli citizen, who decided to invite himself to an organization, African Unity meeting, and the African leadership had to um, disinvite him and kick him out the meeting. And many people felt like that, you know, the African uh, leadership should have not done it. But the question become, what gave this so-called Israeli official to think he has the right to set the any meeting where he was not formally invited? What should you make of that example, Brother Haiki? Well, well, I, I, I think the hubris in the West is astounding. I mean, it's the perception that you can come into a, a sovereign nation uh, or, or a sovereign, uh, a sovereign nations, you can come into that meeting, which is the African Union, and you can actually sit there and be a part of a process which has no relevance whatsoever to you in terms of political, economic, and social issues, but yet you think you have the right to somehow set and be a part of that. It's hubris, pure and simple, Brother Africa. That's, that's, that's no other way to put it. But here's the thing, though. Keep in mind that it was the uh, the president uh, the president of Nigeria. I've got his name, but it was him who made it possible for the for the Zionists to 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 uh, you know uh, to be a part of that process in the first place. It is good to see that the masses of African people come to the masses of African leaders at the AU came to their senses and say, "Listen, this is so, so totally unacceptable." And I told him so told him to listen. Y'all got to go. Y'all got to leave. It was good to see that. I mean, that kind of empowerment. I mean, it's good to see that because uh, one of the things that, in terms of true empowerment, comes from actually exercising power. And so to see the African leaders say, "Listen, tell the Zionists, listen, y'all got to pack your bags and get the hell out of here, because this is not for you." It's empowering. And for President Ramaphosa to say, "Listen, listen, we have a process," you know what I'm saying? And uh, we want people to respect that process. It speaks violence in terms of you know the the, the mentality or the, or the or the mindset of African leaders are changing throughout throughout the continent, and I'm happy to hear that. I'm really happy to hear that. Finally, we come to realization that African leaders have come to realization that you have to first and foremost you have to stand up first and foremost. Secondly, you have to take positions that are maybe not uh, not uh, <coughs> not not uh, supported by the West, but unless they do so in the interest of African of the African continent. So I'm very happy to see that. But I think to answer your question, Brother Africa, I think pure and simple, you know, for the, for the, and for these people to actually talk about <coughs> to come into this meeting with, with the expectation, you know, that they can that they, they deserve to be there, I think it's hubris. But more importantly, Brother Africa, I think one of the things that's funny, uh, I think it's really not funny, but it's sort of pathetic, you know, in some sense, uh, the designer's position was that how dare, how dare these people, how dare these people throw us out? Or well, there are going to be repercussions for that. Well, we going well, that's a price to pay for throwing us out. And I think the African position is very, very clear. You know, whatever you, whatever you, whatever you theorize, or whatever you attempt to do, in terms of crippling the continent, you know, we're prepared for whatever it is that you do. Uh, keep in mind, you know, without the support of the United States, uh, Israel power is limited anyway. So I think only African leaders, particularly, see uh, threats coming from the Zionist regime of Israel as a particular threat. But nonetheless, it's very funny to see that these designers are very, very upset that these people have the audacity to throw us out. Anyway, I'll close with that. Well, you know, brother, like you said, in the community, in order to get some ass, you got to bring some ass. So, Africa, let's get it on, as probably gave us it. But, brothers and sisters, we listened to Africa on the move. We have just um, entertained the segment of what's going on in your world and the community and 
every week. If you'd like to be a part of this discussion and share with us what's going on in your world and community, we welcome you to call in every Sunday. You come on at 7 p.m. That dialing 323-679-0841. What we're going to do right now, we're going to take a revolutionary culture break. And when we come back, we're going to go into a segment of our theme today, which is Africa is fighting. Yes, struggle comes through all forms. Right, we are fighting. We're fighting for everything. Our essence, our survival. We're fighting against all forms of oppression. So when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the attitudes and examples as a reflection of Africa, African people is fighting. This is Brother Africa. You listen to Africa on the Moon. Uh, if you smell it, we're going to tell it. So when we come back, come and join us. Right now, we too love Africa because this is where our heart lies. This is Brother Africa, Africa on the Moon.
Africa, 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 I want you to be free. 
all these narratives that were presented to her, and she shaped and developed and created her own narratives of how we should articulate and respond back to these narratives and information that have been presented and pictures about how Africa and African people are. So at this point, panelists, we'd like to just where y'all, you know, uh, have y'all weigh in on some of the issues and things that she read or that she spoke to on these interviews. And one of the things she read in general, I'd like to I'll start with you, Brother Haki, in terms of just her tone of her demeanor, how she responded to many of the questions from the interviewer, interviewee and interviewers. And one of the things she said, which I think is definitely true, is that the narratives and how they describe Africa, African peoples, is one of not a true narratives. Uh, and one of the things she spoke about is Africa is not a poor, no, it's not, is a country of people who um in poverty. She gave a totally different spin and take on it. And I'd like for you maybe speak a little bit to it, uh, how she addressed that. And um, we'll turn the mic now over to you, Brother Haki. Africa's not poor, not it's not a people or nation of, of poverty. She said most of all of these realities are no more than how Europeans and the West are shaping Africa based upon their historical looting and raping of Africa. Your response, Brother Haki. Yeah, uh, I, I think just from her general demeanor, it was obvious her parents were very, very conscientious. I mean, that's very, very obvious. And certainly one of the things I thought was very interesting was she talked about the fact that her white mother wouldn't allow her to have use chemicals in her hair. In other words, uh, your natural hair is beautiful, and you don't need all that crap to be beautiful. So I thought that was very, very extraordinary. So clearly, you know, when you sit there and listen to her talk, clearly uh, her parents were very, very uh, informative. Uh, and, and, and clearly they, they departed a lot of information to this young lady because it's very, very clear because when the interviewer uh, raised certain aspects in terms of what is, you know, what is it being African or what is the African continent uh, all about, uh, she corrected a lot of those narratives. And so that speaks to perhaps, you know, the the education she received from her parents in addition to, uh, you know, individual study in terms of clarifying precisely, you know, uh, you know the, the plight of, you know, of the African continent. I think uh, one of the things I, I think that um, – you know, when, when you say that Africa is, is poor, I mean, it has certain res, uh, certain connotations. When you say it's poor, you're saying that it's, uh, somehow it's, it's debilitated, it's weak, uh, it's incapable of, of rising up. Uh, that is the implication in terms of living the continent as poor. She corrected that narrative by saying, no, the continent is not poor. I think which, I think she said to the interview, I think what you're trying to get at is the fact that the, the continent was, was, was looted. Uh, it continues to be looted, you know, by Western nations, but it's not poor. In that context, in terms of all the things, in that context, I think she's saying that all that the continent needs is here. I mean, you got the, the, the you got the population, you got the raw resources, uh, you got those things you need in terms of you know turning that situation around. So to say that Africa is poor is somewhat being disingenuous. In fact, what you're saying is that you know the creativity in in in, 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 the, in the in the in the drive of the people. It somehow gets discounted, and saying that those things only exist on the African continent, whereas they exist everywhere, everywhere else. And so she fundamentally rejects this notion and the fact that you know that uh, you know that that, that 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 despite the hardships Africa endures, that it can't overcome those hardships. So I thought that was very, very good in terms of her analysis, in terms of this whole question around you know is Africa a poor nation? And even though the interviewer persists in, in this, this narrative in terms of Africa being a poor nation. 
I think one of the things I think is that's key is that we do fundamentally begin to understand that the the question in terms of poverty is a very very is a very, very loaded is a very, very loaded concept. And so poverty has many connotations to many, many people. So one of the things we cannot do and we shouldn't do in relation to Africa, when people call Africa poor, say, no, 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 Africa is not poor. Africa has simply been doing some challenges in terms imposed upon it by the West, but it's not poor. The elements that it needs in terms of being able to turn the situation around exist. The vitality and the creativity of the people exists. Uh, the political organization, though not there, is certainly going to be there at some point, at some point in history. Uh, but certainly, you know, the potential in terms of turning the situation around does exist. And so poverty in that extent doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, hold Africa hostage in terms of, you know, you know, any type of conceivable change that possibly may take place on the continent. Anthony, one of the responses that she gave to the interview is that she used a real excellent description of the issue of the face of Africa. And she used the description of Africa has cancer. And the cancer is the exploitation of Europe or exploiting Africa. Talk a little bit about that that description description. Not only does it have cancer, but Africa they have written itself from it. So just talk a little bit from that from that perspective, Brother Anthony, in terms of how you internalize that response. Yes, uh, indeed. Uh, uh, Africa does suffer from uh, from the cancer. That cancer is imperialist exploitation of Africa's resources and and labor. And uh, and I think she and I think she made that clear in one of her responses to the question in the case of uh, Namibia. She gave that as an example uh, that actually uh, N- N- uh, Namibia is very rich in natural resources, that uh, its labor and resources have been exploited to serve the interests of European imperialists. And she gave the example of how uh, the Hararo were practically exterminated by the Germans in, during the 19th century. And the people that were, uh, you know, that were left were uh, subject to uh, in practical enslavement uh, to, uh, you know, to uh, has yours of resources to serve capitalist and imperialist interests. And uh, it's a cancer in the fact that, uh, you know, it's something that was visited upon Africa. Africa was not always in this condition. And uh, she pointed that out during, uh, during the interview, that Africa was not poor, just that uh, the people are poorly organized. And this is something that uh, Kwame Ture used to point out when he spoke of Africa, that Africa is not poor, it is just poorly organized. And we are poorly organized uh, because we, because of our disunity and lack of uh, political education and lack of understanding of our history, 
we have not been able to uh, to throw off the yoke of capitalism, which once we do, we will be able to develop uh, our resources in our own interests, just as people do on any other on every other continent, except for those uh, places that are dominated by imperialism or settler colonialism such as Australia and New Zealand and, uh, you know, Central and South America. But uh, we do have, once we're organized and once we've uh, uh, thrown off the yoke of oppression that dominates Africa, then we will be developed uh, we will be able to develop our resources to serve the interests of African people. And it's going to take Pan-Africanism to achieve that. That is why it is so important that we get politically organized and uh, educated in order to be able to defeat all manifestations of capitalism that exists presently inside of Africa. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Sister Eleanor, she responded to this narrative, and she reversed it very, very succinctly and very intelligently. She said that they gave the narrative that Africa is constantly getting aid from the West. They constantly getting Africa aid because Africa is so poor. Well, she's saying that the reality is all the aid is that Africa is getting aid to the West. They are getting aid from Africa, not giving Africa any aid. Your response to that, Sister Eleanor? She was uh, extraordinarily articulate in that uh, Africa is not receiving aid from the West. Africa is is aiding Europe and, in effect, being robbed by Europe and the West. Uh, she mentioned uh, cobalt and different things needed for our cell phones, our cars, all of these things, and that the hunger and suffering of Africa is not a result of uh, of intrinsic poverty or uh, ignorance. It is because of imperialism and exploitation and also the impact of neocolonialism and their willingness to to play along with uh, uh, with uh, the imperialists. Uh, you know when I when I when I when I saw the tape it made me think back to um Diego Rivera's Miro of Guatemala and also uh, Eisenhower in terms of uh, Patrice Lumumba when Eisenhower had publicly declared that Lumumba, uh, Patrice Lumumba was another Fidel Castro and he sent the CIA out to uh, uh, initiate the elimination of Lumumba which failed due to a Cuban-Russian coalition uh, that helped organize uh, soldiers from three different uh, 
areas uh, to cross the uh, lake. Uh, and I uh, right now I don't have it at the tip of my tongue, but you know she really talked about an ongoing problem of imperialism and 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 the uh, impact it has had on Africa and impoverishing the people and neo-colonialism enriching just a few to exploit the land and the masses and the environmental impact that it's had. One of the things that Ngruma uh, and uh, Castro had agreed on in, in back in 1960 is that there should be, for example, no atomic weapons and certain weapons on the continent of Africa. There should be no need for this type of thing because then Belgium and the U.S. had a conspiracy going on, uh, and, and it was so much happening in, in, in Africa. So you bring it up to the the 21st century, and we see the same things happening, and she used Namibia as as an example. And what was also interesting is how she took a group of children abandoned children that were being called thugs, but what they were were children without families or support and organized them into a collective to produce art out of recycled materials that she's selling to Europeans, Germans in particular, but she's taking her form across Europe and selling these art objects at, quote, Euro market prices, you know, uh, not not using the CFR notes or any of this kind of thing, just straight up hard earned cash. U.S. She doesn't mind uh, British pound sterling. She doesn't mind, but you're paying the real money for high art produced by these children, which has led to several of them receiving education. And for those that, if nothing else, remain part of the collective, they are working artists and they're able to make a living and no longer, uh, she she mentioned that she had to move from her apartment in Sierra Leone because of uh, housing the children and the owner of the unit that she, or the place that she was living, didn't want them uh, about. So they asked her to move, and they all did move and relocate. But she did not stop working with the collective. So I thought it was pretty good. And the poverty is 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 the effect of uh, uh, a type of slavery, uh, neo-colonialism, where you you don't make sustainable wages, your currency isn't equal to Western currency, and your natural resources are sold as commodities rather than be so, being sold as, uh, 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 they're sold as raw materials instead of being put on the market as a real commodity. You know, commodity brokers, uh, as a part of in the imperialist um, network, become billionaires. But these nations have these staggeringly low GNPs because their their resources aren't being marketed correctly. But uh, she definitely has done some work and doing good work in in Sierra Leone and um, 
and getting great publicity from uh, the German and European press. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Brother Moses, she stated that when she was talking about Africa suffering for cancer, she said the cancer is the European invasion. Your interpretation of the statement, Brother Moses. The what was European invasion? The cancer, the cancer, cancer that Africa, yes, cancer. is suffering from. Certainly, you know, Africa um, has been invaded by Europe. Um, uh, I think Ethiopia was the only only country that was able to not be conquered by the Europeans um, historically. And so, you know, Europe, Europeans have been all over Africa exploring and robbing pillaging, plundering, uh, um, the history of Africa and the the history of how Europe got developed uh, from the resources of Africa and the slave trade and America America was able to use this political economy of of, uh, free labor and uh, chattel slavery and to build up its industry and its Products uh, and to further explore Africa, uh, you know the whole history has been one of exploitation. I mean, we that's that's um, that's what we're faced with today. Uh, the aftermath, and we're trying to rectify what has been done in the past. Uh, uh, the point is not just to understand the world, though. The point is to change the world, and so. You know, the question becomes, what does it take to change the world? And I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And as we talk about Africa's psyche and talking about the different forms and how war is raised against you, Brother Hakeem, one of the things you're real keen in is understanding the power and the usage of language. She stated that one of the most specific things she ever ran across was when she went to Azania, South Africa, and she saw the little African children speaking Africano. She said that how dare you speak of a language of someone who brought nothing but pain and harm to you. Talk about this question of language and how it can be used as a tool of oppression against you, Brother Haki, and the statement she made in terms of why will we use the language of someone brought nothing but harm and pain? Is this a form of domestic genocide that has taken place among the lives of some of our people? I think it's I think it's I think it's pretty hard to disc the that possibility, Brother Africa. I think when you when you speak the, 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 the oppressor's language, to a certain extent you have to internalize the values and mores because the language in and of itself or sort of clarifies the values and mores. Um, so I think that it's, I think it's, it's, it's sort of implicit that, you know, in speaking that that language is going to have a very negative or deleterious impact on emotional and the psychological well-being of those children. I think one of the things about Africa, you know, having been in South Africa, I tell you, I, I got to tell you, um, and, and I, I'm not being facetious, uh, and and I, I feel somewhat guilty even thinking it. But I got to tell you, that's one of the ugliest languages I ever heard. I mean, the accent and jeez. 
I, you know, I, I can imagine my children, if I had a child in South Africa speaking that language. I mean, it's just, it is horrible. I, I mean, the, the accent, the, everything about it is just horrible. And it's just, it, I don't know. I, I mean, let, me, let me get away from that. But in any event, I think, you, essentially, I think you, brother, you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're correct. Brother Hackey, brother Hackey, can I stop you one quick sucker? Sure. You sound just like her. That she was saying the same thing. I thought she was just, you know, I thought she was just, you know, joking. But no, it, it's, it's, it's like really, this. it's really, it really something about that language, that accent, that really just rubs you the wrong way. I don't know what it is, but I just like when I was there. Well, when they talked to me, I just had to walk away. I just couldn't stay there. I couldn't listen to it, you know, because it was just I don't know what it was about that. You know, often people talk about, you know, like, um, you know, the rebel accent in America. You know, you go to places like Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas, and places like that. They have that rebel, that rebel accent, and people just can't, people have a difficult time in terms of dealing with that. Well, that, 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 uh, that Afrikaans accent, I don't know what is it about that, but it's just, it's very irritating. I, I don't know what it is, but I just know I just walk away. When they're talking... I walk away. I, you know, if, unless they had an accent was more more modulated, you know, where you don't hear a lot of that 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 Afrikaans accent, I couldn't listen to them. I, and I, I feel guilty about that because part of the problem is that if you're going to learn, you have to be able to humble yourself down and listen to people, even to those people that you may disagree with. But I tell you, that accent got to me, and I just I just I would walk away. I really would. And I'm like I felt guilty about that, you know, because that was crazy. I had an opportunity to actually talk, engage people in terms of. You know the politics in South Africa, but it's just couldn't get past that. It was that an accent was annoying. I mean, it was very really annoying. I mean, it's just ugh. anyway. Anyway, um, I'll leave it. I'll leave it at that. Now, listen, I do understand all languages have their idiosyncrasies. I I do understand that. Uh, but I tell you, but that but the Afrikaans one is just ugh. Uh, anyway, anyway, listen back to your question, Brother Africa. I I I I I think that certainly uh, at this at this point in point in history, I think for any African child to continue to learn Afrikaans, I, I think it's a real injustice. And I certainly would hope, you know, that the community, if not if not the government, would encourage into that language, or at least to into African children using that language. It's okay for the for the for the Dutch to use that language, that's fine. But for the African children, I, I really like to see the, the the community or the government step up and say, listen, this is simply from a, a, a from a psychological point of view something very, very devastating for the psychic or, or the emotion, uh, mentality or, the, or intellectual capabilities of our children. And for that reason, we can discourage this use in terms of a particular language. But that's me, and I close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki and Brother Anthony. As we talk about Africa's psyche and walk on all kinds of forms, the sister made a real a key um, observation when she raised the issue of the narrative that when the West make laws and rules, they don't follow their own laws and rules with respect to others to do, to do. Your response to that narrative, Brother Anthony? I think that's a good observation. And, uh, you know, and I think, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the capture of uh, an enslavement of Africans uh, illustrates that uh, very well, which uh, Brother Bob Brown goes into uh, in his uh, email 
to um, uh, to Pope Francis and the uh, Catholic Church worldwide. But uh, speaking of, uh, of that, I think uh, you know that uh, you know uh, you know uh, a lot of the European ruling class are hypocrites in that respect. In the fact that they don't in, uh, in follow the laws and policies they impose upon the world to follow, and uh, you know, and uh, you know, uh, uh, chattel slavery is an, a, an example of that. The the forced imposition of uh, their language upon. Uh, the rest of the world is an example of that, uh, you know, because uh, even the imposition of uh, the English language is an example of that, uh, you know, um, you know, imposing uh, French uh, languages like Afrikaans, French, Dutch, English are all examples of that form of uh, exploitation. And it makes it more difficult for people to uh, to know and understand and pass on their cultural values on to the next generation or to the youth. And, um, you know, and I think she's uh, very correct in that regard. And, um, you know, and as a result, Africans in the diaspora do not understand uh, the contributions that Africa has made to uh, human society and human development. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Sister Eleanor, as we fight this propaganda wall by uses of words and images, the West has a tendency to talk about this concept that they are developed, developed countries versus non-developed and poor countries. She spoke to that issue in reference to making the reality that when one talks about being a developed country, and actually they talk about countries that have looted, stolen, and taken from other countries, such as so-called third world. And when they talk about development, so that's the reason why they are so-called, if you want to say, ahead of the countries. Your response to that reality, when we say development, really we're talking about countries that are thieves and takers. Your response is to Eleanor. What she's talking about, well, we all know that so that imperialism has led to the underdevelopment of, of, of the global south and of Africa. And um, uh, we know this, and, and, and to backtrack to what Brother Haiki had mentioned um, earlier about the African Union, uh, last week Nigeria had an election, and uh, Mohiri, Mohari, I may be saying his name wrong, the outgoing president, um, the new president is a 70-year-old, one of four candidates, but he's of the same party as the outgoing president. So what you saw was the African Union taking a look at what was happening in Nigeria. 
that Nigeria had promised to publish its um, uh, voting um, uh, results immediately. They had all this high-tech infrastructure there and capable of doing it, but it was not done. There were four candidates, and uh, one was the uh, outgoing president's uh, party. Two of them were U.S.-born citizens of, of Nigerian descent, and one was an actual Nigerian. Well, for the first time in Nigerian history in a long time, in 40 decades, uh, the masses came out to vote, and young people came out to vote, and I think all of Africa and the neo-colonial leaders were taking a look because when you talk about the developed world, all the developed world are are the countries who have empowered and enriched themselves from human labor to natural resources and and have built themselves and rebuilt themselves again. The Marshall Plan is an example of Europe using uh, the underdevelopment of Africa during the 20th century to rebuild Europe after the destruction of World War II. So we see these uh, atrocities, just as uh, uh, we see right now with uh, Russia. Russia is a, a large country that went from sea to sea, and the U.S. has backed uh, a Russian group of people called Ukrainians to secede from Mother Russia. They want to rewrite history. So Catherine the Great will no longer be a part of Russian history because of her being in the Ukraine. Odessa, one of Russia's greatest cities, will now be a part of the Ukraine. Russia will have no access to its sea. So we see this whole phenomenon of underdevelopment and developing. As uh, Brother Haiki said, capitalism is dying, imperialism is dying, the EU is sinking, and uh, the U.S. is sinking. And when uh, Brother Anthony mentioned the neo-colonial languages, he forgot Portuguese and Spanish. We are, I'm not English, but I'm certainly using uh, the, I'm an Anglophone, and so we see Francophones, Anglophones all around the world, Hispanics. It's a language. It's not our heritage. It is the heritage of our colonial oppressors, of our enslavers, of our conquerors. And we should be uh, clear of those things when we are learning world history, especially in the Americas. People walk around talking about the United States as a country of immigrants. Well, uh, El Salvador is a country of immigrants. Canada is a country of immigrants. Uh, The newly created Panama, which was a part of Colombia, is a country of immigrants. Honduras, let's go down the list. The only one to speak truth to power about their country that I can think of recently have been Fidel Castro. And Fidel Castro called Cuba what it is. It's a, uh, he said it was a part of uh, 
a melting pot or a stew pot of chicken and potatoes. It was indigenous. It is African. It is Spaniard. And he called the Chinese people coolies because during the mid-19th century, more than a half a million people were bought from the uh, uh, Canton region to Cuba. And he, he, he talked about that. And I, I think that it's important that begin to recognize ourselves as who we are and what we are, because that is essential to our going forward and our survival. Uh, and the underdevelopment of Africa is a clear result of imperialism, of capitalism and imperialism. Thank you, Sister Ellen. Thank you, Sister Ellen Miller. Brother Moses, you know, uh, the indigenous people say Europeans or the white men talk with double tongues. And in this case, the sisters talk about if you're going to define something, let that definition be applicable across the board. For example, why is it that Europeans can't accept the concept of terrorism? A ter- uh, this concept of so-called terrorist. He said terrorist is a terrorist. And doesn't make no difference where the terrorist may come from if he committed a terrorist act. Can you speak on that that particular narrative a little bit, Brother Moses? Is a terrorist a terrorist, or does it depend upon where they come from? Okay, um, we we got an objective situation here. Um, existentialism, I guess. Um, um, a terrorist is a terrorist. Uh, um, uh in and in the Russian Revolution um um the question was do do revolutionaries um outlaw terrorism? Do we reject terrorism as a tactic? Um um and during the Russian Revolution uh, they had not totally outlawed terrorism as a tactic. Uh uh terrorism one person's terrorism is another person's revolutionary um, uh, act, uh, of, and um, so the question of terrorism is a question of collateral damage. It's a question of of uh, of of, uh, of why why is it reasonable? Uh, is is the terrorism totally outlawed? I mean. Is, is any situation where terrorism might be necessary that becomes the issue. Um, as a rule, as a general principle, uh, we, Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King, um, is nonviolent direct action is favorable. Um, we are always saying is try to give peace a chance, and um, and and um, so, but terrorism as a, I I when I was um, Coming out of the military, um, I took a stand um, in writing uh, against terrorism. I didn't, I didn't understand why terrorism, why we needed terrorism, and I, I took a stand against terrorism. Uh, um, uh, but yeah, terrorism is, is an act, uh, a violent act, uh, in that 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 uh, that basically. Is to 
frightened people, basically, for one reason or another, is to frighten people and um, to to uh, intimidate and uh, and um, put people in, in deep concern for their well-being. Uh, um, and uh, as a as a general act, uh, I'm opposed to that that terrorism. Um, uh, um, I think you know we have to reason. We should be able to reason and um, and uh, and uh, use other methods of of coercion and persuasion. Uh, uh, but when the final final dust clears, there is. Civil war is not terrorism per se. Um, civil war is is war, and uh, and you know the highest form of revolution actually is in according to Lenin was civil war. I mean that was the highest form, uh, basically because that because until the issue is resolved, it's gonna be be there. Um, uh, class struggle continues. And so it's a it's an antagonistic contradiction, and it's costing lives daily. Um, um, yeah. And so you know, a true revolutionary, you know, is is for is for changing the situation, and uh, and uh, sooner or later, you know, um, that's why Castro get, wanted to give. Um, uh, Hugo Chavez, uh, uh, AK-47, because basically, if you're going to really have revolution, it's going to there's going to be opposition, there's going to be violence, because you're not going to be able to if if you're going to have real revolution, then there's going to be a change in the political economy, there's going to be a change in the wealth system, in the property situation, and um, it's going to it's going to there's going to be a reaction to that, and that's just that's scientific. That's not just just you know you saying it. You know it's, it's something that uh, that direct and historical materialism has proved from the Paris Commune to the Soviet Union to Cuba to China to whatever. Uh, um, this has been proven as a fact. Uh, and so all we're saying is give peace a chance. We're, we're for the nonviolent direct action. We're for change. We're for a peaceful transition to socialism. But we but we recognize it's not going to happen. It's going to no. It won't be any peaceful transition. Uh, it's going to be a struggle, and it's going to become violent. Uh, it's going to cost lives, and um, the right wing is preparing for the uh, January sixth was the indication of that they they are are serious and they're gonna be serious and, and Trump hasn't given up uh the the right wing um organization that is uh, in the Republican Party is is consolidated into into a uh a fascistic organization. Um and you know right now uh, today um Biden was on the Pettis, Pettis Bridge marching uh, for Bloody Sunday. Um, that's the difference between Democrats and Republicans. They, it would never happen. A Republican, Donald Trump, would never do that. 
So the people are different. Uh, for those who, who keep saying it's, it's all the same party. Um, but anyway, I'll let it go. Thank you. That's just President Brother Moses, the last point you made, because I can trans, transition to Brother Haki for the last uh, response towards today's program. And we will continue the discussion next week, part three, on Africa is fighting. Brother Haki, she rejected she rejected the whole narrative that there's no such thing as a special friend. Or there's no such thing as being able to pay someone back. When you have looted them, you have killed them, you have killed our family members. Um, she's saying, how do you pay back? How do you become someone's special friends? And I thought that was real profound in terms of, you know, this whole narrative of our people understanding that there's some things you can't pay back. Your response to her response, Brother Hackey. I agree. I agree. Uh, that there comes a time in which we're, you know, recompense is simply impossible. When you think about the systematic destruction, you know, of, of a people or, or large groups of people, uh, not only are you talking about their fundamental deaths, but you're also talking about in terms of what potential they could contribute to that society had they lived. You also talk about the innovations they could have innovated, innovated had they lived. Uh, you're also talking about in terms of the general malaise that you're creating that society by killing off a large number of people, you know, to do systematic means. So there's no way to repay that. That's that's the bottom line. That's no we that's no we way to repay that. Uh, people talk about uh, you know uh, you know they talk about uh, reparations 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 is not really about recompense in terms of you know trying to make right what happened in the past. It's simply it's simply a tool used to make sure that people understand that because you did a horrible thing that there are consequences financially in terms of doing such a hard thing. So it's discouraged that kind of behavior into the future, which is precisely the reason why uh, the, the power structure is adamant opposed to reparations, because this whole notion in terms of systematically uh, doing what it has to do in terms of maintaining the power uh, is one of those kind of ethos that the ruling class endorse. So they don't have a fundamental problem in terms of destruction of people. They don't have a problem with that. In fact, that's their key to longevity, is to be able to kill a large number of people over relatively short periods of time. And so, therefore, they're going to hold on to that. So anything that calls into question their propensity to kill, they're going to fight. So reparations become enemy number one as far as the ruling class is concerned because they want to create, continue the perception that the kill is always justifiable, you know, under any number of circumstances. But, anyway, and let, me, but let me go back real quickly, Brother Africa. I think something that I think is, is, I think is important that we, that, that, we, that we deal with, you know, um, you know, the question in terms of is a terrorist a terrorist? Uh, you know, one of the things we have to understand, and you know, some, at some point we have to become realistic in our assessment in terms of the American society or the world that we live in. Uh, one of the things, and when you talk about America, for instance, and you talk about, you know, being run, you know, by a capitalist system, one of the things you have to understand, you have to dispense with this notion that morality exists. Uh, so in order to, to, to define terrorism, at some point you have to define morality. In the context of capitalism, there is no morality. There's only expediency. You do what the hell you got to do in order to keep the money coming in to maintain power. Pure and simple. It's that simple. So for the United States to commit systematic abuse, to fundamentally wipe out, you know, you know, lots and lots of people for a relatively short period of time, uh, to deny people access to food, uh, to deny people access to education, to deny people access to housing, it's not a problem for them. They see it as a necessary evil in terms of maintaining power. So the question in terms of morality for them, it's not a question at all. 
And so what we, you and I perceive as terroristic tactics, they perceive as doing what you got to do in the context of capitalism. That's the fundamental problem that we're confronting with. And Brother Moses is right. When, you, when you're up against a system that just has no morality, there's no way you can reason. There is no discourse, no discussion that can be had in terms of getting them to understand that what you're doing is fundamentally wrong. Stop it. Let's, let's, do it. let's go about a new paradigm. That doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. For them, they see you as being A, irrational, B, foolish, or C, you know, uh, just uh, 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 demented. They don't see in terms of when you talk about a new paradigm, they say, well, a new, a new paradigm means that the exploitation, the benefits from the exploitation, all the, research, all the power and the money that comes with that will be, I will be, I will be lost. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And so, therefore, for them, so when you start talking about terrorism, you say, hey, you know what you're doing? I mean, seriously, what you're doing, you're denying your population, you know, food, shelter, and housing. The nine people around the world, food, shelter, and housing. Don't you see that's terroristic? They said, no, 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 I don't see it as being terroristic. Matter of fact, the State Department, the Defense Department, Intelligence Department, is all geared to realm terrorism. It's all about terrorism. It's different forms of terrorism. And Brother Moses, in terms of a difference between the Democrat and Republican Party, let's be very, very clear about something. One of the things that, in essence, there is no difference between the two. Let's, let's not be confused about that. Okay? The form may differ. A lot, you may get a perception that you're really about change without actually being about change. So Biden can walk across a bridge under the guise that, you know, uh, you know he supports the movement in, in Ireland, Ireland against the British at a, time, at, a very, at a very difficult time in Irish history. He can do that. But it doesn't fundamentally change the structures of capitalism in terms of how capitalism manifests inequality, destruction, and death. That being called into question. So, so as we know, Republicans are about big business and, and big business and wealth. Well, so are Democrats. Democrats are also big business and wealth. They just won't say it. They will tell you that they care concerned about the common man or woman. But then, but you look at their policies, and the policies are indistinguishable. So the essence. It's the same. The form may change. You may say that you are about the people, when in reality you're not. Or you might say, you know, uh, uh, you, you're about the betterment of people by giving the rich what they want, when reality is, when you get the rich what they want, the poor could never benefit from giving the rich what they want. So the essence, so the, so the, so the essence is the same. The form changes. And let's not confuse it. So there is a, there's, there's no fundamental difference between the two. Malcolm X is absolutely correct on that point. There's no fundamental difference between the two. So let's, let's, let's be very clear on that point. But your point in terms of, you know, in terms of, you know, the inevitability of armed struggle in the, context of a, in the context of capitalism, capitalism makes any other alternative possible. Capitalism, like I said, doesn't endorse morality. It doesn't even understand what morality is. When you've got a system that's all about expediency, which says that I do what i got to do to maintain power and wealth, and I don't care about the repercussions in terms of what it means to human life. I don't care about the repercussions in terms of what it means to the planet. I don't care about the repercussions what it means in terms of in terms of in terms of animal and plant life. I don't care about any of that stuff. I only care about money and power. Well, such a system is not likely to respond to sentiments of morality or sentiments of right and wrong. They don't have no concept of right and wrong. That is not to say individuals who are capitalists don't understand right and wrong. But in the context of terms of how the system plays itself out, when you talk about the tenets of capitalism, it has no understanding of right and wrong. And if you're going to function under that system, then on some level you have to embrace this notion that there is no difference between right and wrong and that morality doesn't exist, that everything is expedient. 
And listen, this comes, this raises the class question. Why it's so different when you, ask, when you get African conservatives who run around embracing this insanity, not understanding that embracing this insanity ultimately is the destruction of not just you and your people, but for everybody who look like you. And not even understanding the, co- and not even saying the correlation between embracing the policy and the destruction of your own community. Not even being clear on that. Because for them, everything is expedient. They're about the wealth and the power of the big houses, the big cars, and all of that. They're not looking in terms of the repercussions in terms of what they do. So they embrace that capitalist ethos which says that it's not about morality, right and wrong has no place, that it's all about wealth and power. Pure and simple, court blank. So anyway, Brother Africa, I'm, I'm getting long-winded. I'm going to simply close with that and simply say that, you know, I think that, you know, the, the, the bottom line is that, you know, um, in the context of terrorism, terrorism is much is, is, an, is, is, is a tool of capitalism. And for us to think that somehow that they're going to dispense with a useful tool is wishful thinking on our parts. And I'll close with that. And on that note, we're going to take a rubber share culture break. And when we come back, we're going to make some announcements. We can make a call for your support, and our panelists and analysts will have their final thoughts for today's program, which is part two, Africa is fighting. This is Brother Africa on Africa on the Move. Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey, yeah, to last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Hellerino, a bloodline across the waters, from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. 
and each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. When the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be. And made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. If you think of the Middle East, in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land, some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine. Needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, needs her freedom. Palestine, needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why. People cannot live, so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. 
Take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs, our needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed, plant the seed of love, and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Her freedom, Palestine, Palestine needs our love. Thank you. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. We're discussing part two Africa is fighting, and we will continue the discussion next week, same time, same place. As we discuss part three, Africa is fighting, and we'd like to invite you to join us and spread the word, and we ask you to do a couple of things in terms of being in association and in partnership with us. Those things are, number one, spread the word. We want you to help us increase our listenership within the next six months to at least over 100,000 more people. At the same time, we'd like to have your support. If you'd like to support this radio program, there are various ways you can do this. One, you can zell us at African Awareness Association 2 at Gmail, or you can cash app us at dollar sign, capital L, small e, small e, small c, small r, small o, small b. That's again, you can cash app, dollar sign, capital L, small e, small e, Small C, small R, small O, small B, or Zella at Africa Awareness Association 2 at gmail.com. You know, wherever there are financial dependency, there cannot be no freedom. So come and help us and join us. Your contribution will be greatly appreciated. Now, at this point in time, what we're going to do, we're going back to our political panelists and analysts, and we're going to ask them to share with us their final words. For today's program, we now will turn the mic over to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, your final thoughts for tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Africa. Um, in order to move forward, we have to know the past, and we have to know where we are in the present, and we have to have a vision that is revolutionary for the future. Uh, we have to know that here in the heart of the beast, we have an obligation to do everything we can to alleviate the suffering of humanity, and, and we have to use every available means 
as Malcolm X said, by any means necessary, the ballot or the bullet. And right now we're having the ballot. The bullet is yet to come. Um, so um, with that saying, I'll have a good night and have a good good week. Thank you. And you do the same, Brother Moses. Next we'll go to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, your final thoughts for the night. Final thoughts. Well, thank you um, for a wonderful show. I'd like to uh, remind uh, our listeners that uh, the election in Nigeria is being contested. And as Brother Robert said, the ballot is what's being used. And since it failed in Nigeria, they're taking it. The Nigerian people are taking it to the courts. And to to quote Fidel Castro, Cuba is an African Latin American country. Indeed, as is Bolivia, its identity is different from the other Anglo-Saxon Americas. And uh, he talked about the ethnic groups uh, that Cuba was made up of. Between 1521 and 1873, 300 million Africans and African slaves arrived on the shore of Cuba. They were thrown in barracks where they were forced to fight, not to fight, but to slave as Cuba was converted into a massive sugar plantation. The life expectancy for one of these slaves was 12 and a half years. These people were from ethnic groups such as the Bantu, the Congolese, the Yoruba, the Fanta, the Fulani, the Ashante, the Mandinka, and the list goes on. Cuba's current population, uh, as I said, is made up of abolition, uh, uh, ab- Aboriginal people, Spaniards, Black Africans, and Chinese because of the some 150 uh, thousand Chinese that were bought in the mid 19th century from the port of Canton. Cuba is um, the last Latino country to gain its independence, and it fought in three wars during the 19th century and during Women's History Month. I'd like to say that. Uh, the mother of Cuba, uh, the woman that is considered, according to Fidel Castro, the mo- mother of Cuba, is Mar- Mariana Gargeles de Mar- Marcio. She was uh, mixed African, uh, mixed African and European descent, who served in the battle in battle with her husband and thirteen sons and daughters. Uh, and uh, she's the mother of Cuba because that, between 1895 and 1898, during this battle, 26% of Cuba's population was lost. But they did one thing. They broke the yoke from Spain, and that is the beginning 
of what Cuba calls internationalism and solidarity among other people. And it will always have cooperation with African people. There are now Cubans, thousands of Cubans working in 26 different African countries around the world. And Cuba no longer exports soldiers, but when liberation is needed to fight apartheid or to fight colonialism, Cuba is there. Terrorism must never be accepted. Terrorism is not a revolutionary act. Uh, What we saw happening in Palestine, in occupied uh, Palestine in the last month is, is terrorism. The military are terrorists. The government is a right-wing terrorist government, and the settlers are terrorists. They're illegally occupying Palestinian territory and burned homes and and cars and and grape. Uh, I'm sorry, olive orchards and killed. 11 children, I understand. Um, uh, There were two elderly people, and I believe 11 children actually killed, as well as uh, a total of, uh, uh, I'm not sure of the number of other adults that lost their lives since this new year in in Palestine. So, and, and, and so we have to, just remember that terrorism is not the answer, and revolution is. And we've seen revolution happen. We've seen what happened in Colombia. We've seen what happened in Venezuela. What we do know is that sanctions and embargoes are a type of economic warfare, and they cause harm. What we do know is that the CIA has a checklist chaos, economic unrest, and division, dividing a people against itself. And this causes many otherwise solvent governments to crumble. What we do know is that 2,400 Cuban internationalist fighters lost their lives on African soil, but not to no avail, because what they did do was help liberate and protect the liberation of, 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 of Africa. And what we do know that if you visit the city of Havana, there stands a bus of people like Patrice Lumumba, Nasser, Sekou Tere, and other great African leaders. And what we also know is that the park of the nationalist African heroes stands the bus of Kwame and Ture. So we know that there is unity amongst the masses globally, and the struggle for independence goes on, and the struggle for the people for liberation continues. And thank you so much for allowing me to participate in this evening's forum. Good luck and congratulations to the Nigerian people for taking the election to the courts and striking down the neo-colonialist dictatorship that has been subject to 
for the last eight or more years. And have a good week. And um, just a reminder that uh, last Tuesday, the Equal Rights Amendment celebrated its 100th anniversary of being a bill, never to become an actual amendment in the United States, and that everyone is also urged to write their congressperson to let them know how urgent it is to pass this amendment. And we should start with the representatives of Wyoming, because Wyoming was the first state in the union to give women the right to vote of the then uh, 48 states. And uh, now that we're 50 states, we're still waiting for the Equal Rights Amendment to pass. In other nations, they have Equal Rights Amendment, giving women the right to equal pay, equal uh, everything to men, women and children, because when women are liberated, so are their children. So with that in mind, I just want to say thank you so much for allowing me to participate in this evening's forum. And uh, we must combat terrorism, and we must do it through education and organization. Thank you. Good night. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Next, we're going to Brother Haki. Your final choice, Brother Haki. Yeah, um, you know, um, a German research firm called Statista came with some interesting uh, inform- information. Uh, anyway, you talked about the fact that uh, in terms of U.S. military expenditures, U.S. military spent in Ukraine in the first 11 months, they spent $46.6 billion. Now, thus far, the U.S. has spent something like $113 billion in Ukraine. And if you contrast that with historical expenditures in terms of war, it's very, very interesting. U.S. expend in terms of Vietnam between 65 and 1975, they spent $91 billion in that war. In the Iraqi, a desert storm, they spent on average $125 billion per year. In North Korea, between 1950 and 1953, they spent $138 billion during that conflict. So it's very interesting because one of the things that when you, when you think about in terms of expenditures for war, it doesn't contribute to economic growth. In fact, it hurts economic growth. I think people should understand that fundamentally. The, the beneficiaries from war are two groups, essentially, the wealthy and the defense industry. That's it, pure and simple. And the question arises, of course, who pays the bill when, they, when the U.S. goes to war? Well, it's very, very simple, very simple formula. The poor pay the bills. How do the poor pay the bills? They pay the bills by through interest rates. In other words, transferring wealth or to charge the poor you know, for fighting those wars, they create interest. The interest is simply transferred from the poor, from the poorest people in society to the wealthiest people in society. So the wealthy evade paying for those wars while the poor are heavily indebted in terms of paying for those wars. And so fundamentally that means there's, there's a reduction in terms of resources in society. So I think for people in the society, we have to fundamentally ask ourselves, when we look at in terms of homelessness, uh, joblessness, uh, you know, uh, lack of education for the masses of people in society, you fundamentally ask yourself, why does that exist? Well, it exists because it's part and parcel of a capitalist system. And so in that context, we have to understand you know, that no matter how much we embrace capitalism, the bottom line is that we have a problem in the sense that capitalism in terms of how it operates uh, is, is, is very, very destructive uh, you know, to society at large. Now, having said that, Brother Africa, I always encourage people to unravel the matrix. I mean, one of the things is very, very clear. It is 
it would be great if, you know, ideally, ideally speaking, if, in fact, we could get uh, all people, irrespective of ethnicity, to come to the realization that there's something fundamentally wrong in terms of how capitalism allocates resources in society. The bottom line, that's not happening. I recently read a report about in terms of what happened to the, to the white, white working class. As opposed to embracing, you know, uh, unity, you know, with, with with other ethnicities in terms of, in the, among the working class, uh, white ethnic class tend to embrace uh, those wealthy uh, uh, white politicians, you know, who advocate uh, good things for the masses of white folks, but at the same token, creating policies which 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 create policies which are disadvantageous to the, to the aspirations of poor white people. So the consequence, poor white people and the suffering that they endure, has actually increased. And so when we talk about uh, when we talk about certain unemployment, but when we talk about alcoholism, when we talk about drug abuse, when we talk about suicide among white people, the white working class has actually increased. And so therefore, it seems to me at some point, the white working class have to realize that their interest doesn't lie with the power structure. But that's all ideally speaking. And the reality is that that's simply not happening. And that for whatever reason, the white working class, by and large, has rejected. In its, in, in, in any connection to to working class people, you know, across the board, irrespective of ethnicity. But having said that, I think it's important that we, you know, that we understand that the reality is that. So when I say to African people that it's incumbent upon African people, us, you know, to to resolve the problems that we're confronted with, it's not hyperbole. It's a it's a fact. The bottom line is that those kind of advocate, the kind of allies that we would like to have in terms of. You know, you know, working with the fighters, fight the fighters, fight. The reality is that a lot of times, the political process in society negates against you know that kind of unity, and as a consequence, uh, you know, the bottom line is that African people have to understand that it's come upon us and nobody else in terms of fighting the struggle, and that is the problem that we're confronted with. But anyway, brother Africa, you have a good night. We'll see you next week. And you do the same, brother Haki. Next, we go to. Brother Anthony, and Brother Anthony, make sure you mention again the conference next week and how to be in touch with your organization. Your final thoughts for tonight. Uh, let's see. Um, I want to uh, reiterate again uh, that uh, the international uh, Cuba U.S. National Normalization Conference is taking place. Uh, next weekend, March 11th through March 12th. And uh, you can find out more about uh, the AAPRPGC and uh, and by visiting our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. And uh, you can find out more about the uh, Cuba-U.S. Normalization Conference by visiting their website, www.us-cuba-normalization.org. And uh, you can learn more about the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, our objective and program by visiting our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. And uh, you can email us at info 
dot a dash a p r p dash g c dot org, and uh, I would urge everybody to join an organization that is working for our people's liberation. For only by being organized can we uh, defeat the enemies of African freedom and and uh, Pan-Africanism. Thank you for having me. Good night. Thank you, and good night to you, Brother Anthony. Good night to all our panelists. Good night to our listening audience, friends, and supporters. We look forward to having this continued dialogue next week. And remember, Pan-Africanism is the key. It will set all African free. Until next time, like always, we're going to strive to go forward, ever back with another. This is Brother Africa or Africa on the Moon. And we're going to leave you with some sounds of sweet liberation.
all they want is they dividends and decibels. Fuck these citizens. They'll treat us like hooligans. Throw him in, they don't care what school he in. These people don't play fair. It ain't even fair at the state fair. Give a young nigga gray hair. That's why I'm here. Make your ass lay there. You better stay there. Close your fucking eyes like a daycare. Make myself clearer than Shakespeare. I'm here to take money, even fake hair. So desperate is what I'm left with. For the record, you affected. Who you elected is so septic. So full of shit, I can't accept it. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. I reside on the west side. I murder with my third eye. Nigga so fly, get a bird's eye. I make him scream bloody murder. Let's meet at the White House. Run in and turn the lights out. Man, they treat it like a trap house. These motherfuckers never take the trash out. They just cash out and mash out. Nigga, take your drugs and pass out. Niggas love to go that fast route. I see you when your black ass get out. Homie, you play too much. Why these devils, they doing way too much. Most of them won't say too much. Why they steady planning? God knows what. That's why I roll with the real ones. Real ones, trying to reach millions. Real ones, trying to make billions. Real ones, dressed like civilians. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence.
black man, black man, go on and get a catch scan. I had chain wrapped too straight, too tight. We got a backhand, there ain't no Batman in this black land. I wish a rich nigga would come and save the day and pave the way. Ain't no amazing grace. I blaze the haze to remain the faith. Twenty years with my medicine, but they wanna throw me away for that. Then turn around and legalize it. I wish being black was truly accepted. Four hundred year elephant in the room. This ain't a new deal. They've been treating us like animals. We in a zoo still. So let me tell you how I feel. Guilty conscience trumps common sense every day, y'all. Ignore the issues, look at the victim like it's their fault. As if a wagon ain't harassing, waiting for jaywalkers in front of the building, minding your business. Who's trying to pay your bills as if that wasn't to mention? Conjunction, junction, tell me what's your intention. Don't call them kings and treat them like some common folk. You a fighter like Ronda Rose. Rousey move around the road. Drowsy with a cloud of smoke. Howdy do for Maui, bro. Traveling around the globe, you didn't know, but now you know. Early morning risings, my end of alarm kicking. Birdman hand rubs, feeling my palms itching. I need a spiritual thought with top that's top notch. We watch black power docs and study our chakras. Ooh, child, don't you ever come, come down. You acting like the sun ain't out. And we gon' cop a ticket and fly on out and fly on out. Ooh, child, don't you ever come, come down. You acting like the sun ain't out. Oh dear black man, tell me what happened You can't be low when your glow's everlasting Then when your ass been on ass been like a has been Raising the trap when the guard talk math and moves with a Mac 10 Not that nigga back then, but look now nigga I'm established, cut camera action I cut lines with my sad card, my bitch is packing Then I'm cutting in line with a bad boy, they caught him flagging Then huddle around him with a stat chart, look You stay awake up to me Africa, eh? Ilo Piano, Caribbean, Navarra, Tino, Havana, Africa, we love you, Nebula. 
everybody When you come to Africa Feel at home over there No matter where you're from Go away my friend It's so wonderful When you from me Viva Africa I'm gonna 
Bad cop 
cap, always wagging, about the new case they got, do or die cop with that suicide cop, tell the truth cop with that true lie cop, are you fucking high cop, don't even try cop, ain't no motherfucking drugs up in my spot, all you find in my closet is a high top, and my motherfucking ticket to the skybox, hold up nigga, I'm a rider, use a roller, yes the controller, make me mad, that's when I get sold up, the incredible hocus bipolar, come out the cup, knock off the rust, throw my hands up, so you still wanna bust, the Trojan horse is full of excessive force, when they try to get aggressive niggas off the court, police showing out for the white cop, 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 cop, good cop, where is your dignity, where's your empathy, where is your sympathy, bad cop, where's your humanity, good cop, is that just a fantasy, hell on that nigga, snitch on that bitch, truth be told, motherfuck the blue code, fuck the po-po, acting like D-Po, already know, Craig, I let the brick go, Cause all they wanna do is scatter brain matter A mind is a terrible thing to waste A nine is terrible in your face The mace has a terrible fucking taste The pen is a terrible fucking place The kings all hate the fucking ace The judge sabotage my fucking case Racist motherfucker
semana de los foros. Te metes en internet y lo ves en los foros. Es sabiduría, aunque muchos locos piensen que son habladurías. Pero que primero fondo a la ciencia mía, para que después hablen como comadre chismosa. Yo te escribo en verso y en prosa. No soy Alice en el país de las maravillas. Estamos claros, te portas más que atribillas y hacen papillas. Es que eso es obvio. O eres ángel o eres demonio, ni niño. O eres ángel o eres demonio. Quiero que toda la gente con las manos arriba. ¿Dónde están los latinos con las manos arriba? Que vive el hip hop con las manos arriba. ¿Qué? Con las manos arriba. Que viva la cultura con las manos arriba. El deporte con las manos arriba. Venezuela con las manos arriba. ¿Qué? ¿Qué? Sentimiento, sabor, rumba, corazón. La salsa retumba, retumba el tambor. No se te olvide el coroco. Recuerda el folclore. Te lo digo el rap. Crece la atención.
With a soldier's eye With a soldier's eye With a soldier's eye With a soldier's eyes I've seen inside the devil's dreams Where young men die In graveyards open up their arms For mothers left to cry I have seen the bleeding And I hear what we've done but just like every other fool here, I'll keep marching on Because I know That I'll be coming home soon And yes, I know That I'll be coming home soon With a soldier's eye With a soldier's eye with a soldier's eyes With a soldier's But they 
Passport Rev. Malcolm on Twitter featuring Napoleon the Legend. What if my had Twitter and all that civil rights talk, man, I wouldn't want to hear it This integration been disintegrating Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation His last speech got him assassinated Black business was booming, it wasn't just a consumer Controlling our narrative, we have more marriages And see what the damage did, they ain't that bad a bitch And welfare did it's way worse than the slavery I'll never be an agent, I don't care what they pay me Seemed like Nip had the same old story If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory Like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 was a mystery Supremacy will go the extent to keep their history alive All I'm saying, if these leaders was alive Who be on the internet trying to divide? And use a hotel hustler Trying to fear people of that low vibe structure Agree to disagree and we ain't gotta tear our own down Argue in silence, they'll forever be our own down All I wanna say is that we're giving it away Soul ain't for sale and the devil is a fake Argue with the silence, but don't let it steal our faith Right behind doors, but don't ever show our face Cause if mom had Twitter, Malcolm had Twitter It'd be our own people do the trolling Spill ignorance and do the scolding Where we going? Cause if mom had Twitter, then Malcolm had Twitter It'd be our own people do the trolling Spill ignorance and do the scolding Where we going? Sometimes the key to life you're looking for be right in front of you Tried to show my man hidden colors, he said nothing new I said, what if we've been lied to most of our freaking lives? Every year coming tonight, and you ain't speaking right Your arrogance precedes you What if your faith did? I spoke to God on Wednesday, he said most of it's basic Million dollar mindset to be flying, stay hungry Hieroglyphic writing on walls you couldn't take from me A man lay dead in the street today I must have bumped my head And landed in 1940 or something, I swear And all I have is love and joy to give I need to spread my wings I need to fly away I wanna get high today Who got five on my little bundle of temporary? Man, I wanna live long enough to be legendary Your statistics said by now that I'm gonna be dead and buried But when I heard your voice, it seems as if we met already And I'm march for our rights, that civil, the same purpose Two different tribes and we fighting the same person Could it be that our eyes was deceiving us? We had to have faith when nobody believed in us Cosmic companionship sustained me After my husband was assassinated and gave me the strength to make my contribution to carrying forward his unfinished work. A man laid dead in the street today. I must have bumped my head and landed in 1940 or something, I swear. And all I have is love and joy to give. I need to spread my wings. I need to fly away. Yeah, the 
doing 